Hello, did everyone get an outline? Yeah. Okay. I have a few extra if you didn't. There should be some kind of length They're sitting on the seat. Everywhere. They're everywhere. Okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. And there's some up here too. Next time I'm putting them on this side. <laughs> Heavenly Father, you are so good, and you are, because you are good, you are good to us. And without even knowing it or giving you glory uh, for every little good thing that's happened to us in our day, Lord, it is wonderful and profitable to right now just think about your goodness and just bringing us to this place right now. And God, truly, there is nothing more good than us being able to stare into your truth and into your words that we may be transformed into your precious image. So Lord, we ask today that in this brief amount of time that we would indeed look into your law and your goodness and that we would be transformed to look more like your son. God, I pray that this would be a time of worship, and you would help us digest these very important truths for our good and for the, your glory and for the progress of your church. Amen. So I have this, these issues that have been plaguing me for 10 or more years, um, really nagging problems that if I have a bad day, you'll hear me complain about. One of them is that I've always had consistent headaches. Um, but the thing with my headaches is they're on the left side of my head, and they go back to my back right here. They're never on the right. They're always on the left. This has been going on for, for well over a decade. And then uh, I, I, so I went to a doctor, and they said, oh, you need glasses. So I was like, okay. So I got glasses, and then they said, um, you know, are you struggling with these things? I, I, I dealt with those things, and the headaches still continued. Um, so now they're just kind of a part of my life. I, I try not to complain about them. And then um, a number of years later, uh, I started to get, um, my arm started to go numb. Um, and I thought, well, that's odd. And um, it started plaguing me, and so I quit swimming after swimming for a very long time because I thought that was a problem. And then my head started going numb. So my skull started going numb and I went back to the doctor and they said, well, you hold your neck funny and do you work at a desk? And I said, I do. And they said, well, part of it's because of how you hold your head. So I thought, okay, well, these problems don't go away. In fact, right now I have a slight headache, my head is slightly numb and my hand feels like I have carpal tunnel, which I was also diagnosed with um, because that's what they thought was the problem with the hand. Well, a few weeks ago, I went to a chiropractor, and she decided to take an x-ray. She looked at the x-ray, and she was like, have you been in a severe car accident? And I was like, no, why? She said, well, let's look at your spine. She's like, down here, it goes to the left, and up here, it goes pretty far to the right, and then your head is like 29 millimeters leaning forward, and it looks like it's been damaged. 
And she's like, you, at some age, would have had to have been diagnosed surely with, with a form of scoliosis. So I'm like, no, I didn't know any of this. And I'm like, I'm so relieved because I'm like, what, does that cause this pain? And she goes, absolutely. And does that cause, you know, I was like, this cause this pain? Because yes. And you're, and I'm like, so my arm, this isn't a sports injury? No, that's, you know, that's part of your spine. If all this is out of line, then, then this is going to be affected. And I'm like, this is such good news. All this time, I thought I, I've been treating these symptoms when this is a product of my back. And when I saw the x-ray, it was kind of shocking. I thought, no wonder I'm always shifting. This just makes sense. Now, I'm 42 years old. You'd think I would have figured this out sooner. So I called my mom, and I'm like, Mom, did you know I have scoliosis? Or I mean, It's not full scoliosis, but it's, you know, there's something there. And she said, well, yeah, your pediatrician did tell us that, and that's why we put you in swimming. And we just figured, because you never complained about it, that it got straight. Thanks, Mom. I also am still a little bit confused on uh, the spelling of my middle name, but that's an entire other thing. In my family, we're just not really huge on details. Uh, don't let that scare you. Um, so, so anyway, where am I going with this? Well, in God's providence, I was studying James, and, and my thing is if I'm going to teach, I need to know where the author is coming from as, as, I, as I teach. I have to know where their heart is, and as I'm reading this book, I'm like, you know what? James is coming to these people, and he's assuming that their back is straight. These are people, these are, this audience knows Christ. These are displaced, believing Jews. And he assumes that because they know and they've been confronted with the living Christ, that these symptoms that he is now seeing in their life because of their condition and where they're at in their spiritual lives, these things aren't right. And so when you look at the book of James, all of a sudden I was like, that's it. He is saying, here's this symptom, and here's this symptom, and here's this symptom. And don't you get it? In Christ, these things shouldn't be because your back are straight. You are in him. You are saved. That's his audience. So when these things come up, you can kind of hear him talking, and he's almost like he's talking to them, and he's saying, you're, you're, this shouldn't be because, because you're a Christian. Don't you know there shouldn't be favoritism? Don't you know that these things aren't your identity now? And then he's saying, if these things are this way, consider that your backs aren't straight. Consider, you may not be saved. And so that was very helpful to me. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about one of the symptoms that shouldn't be, because if we're in Christ, our backs are straight. And what the good thing about that is that because our backs are straight and we're in Christ, we have hope and we can overcome this, even though it is a struggle that I believe all of us in some way can identify with. I was encouraged, as I just heard about the small group, that everyone was talking, uh, you know, there was a lot of talking today. There was a lot of engagement. I think we can identify with this issue, and, and, and we're going to dig down to the heart, and we're going to see what James has to say about it. So um, James' goal today is to lead us from the external display of works to the internal reality as we stop compromising with worldly values and behavior. That's really what favoritism is. Some of his background is that James depends on the teachings of Jesus more than any New Testament writer. And as the half-brother of Christ who grew up with him, doesn't it make sense? Douglas Moose made the statement that the author seems to have been so soaked in the atmosphere and specifics of Christ's teaching that he can almost reflect on them unconsciously. And as we dive into the text, we almost see him doing that. Like you read it and you're like, oh, I've heard this before. I've heard this before. And a lot of it we find in the Beatitudes, we find in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in the book of Matthew. So just a little bit of background there. Um, 
So specifically, their situation is that they're converted Jews and they're displaced. So most of you know that I'm a real estate agent and I've gotten to the place uh, with my clients that when we sit down at the very beginning, I let them all know up front, there's gonna come a place in this transaction where you're moving and you are going to get really uncomfortable. And I'm just giving you a heads up that if you come out of character a little bit, no one's gonna judge you. It's and, and, and some, it might bring up some stuff it might bring up some muck and just know that this is gonna happen and that's normal. And the reason it's normal is because for some reason when we don't have our securities, we don't have, we're not in our regular setting, stuff comes up and that's what's happening to his audience being displaced because of the dispersion. Their, the, their stuff is coming up and that is what James is addressing, okay? Specifically, he's addressing this issue which we can assume is a problem in the church. Why? Because he's giving so much time and attention to this issue, okay? So he says to them in chapter two, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the one, to the poor man, you sit over there, or just sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? and become judges with evil thoughts. Now that's a hard word. Imagine that someone comes into the church and you just kind of feel more comfortable around one person. They look a little more familiar to you, like someone you might like, and you're just like, just sit right here. But there, there's other people standing in the back, but this person you just, you have favor on, you have them sit right there. James, depending on your motive, would bring this indictment against you. He would say, that's evil, you're evil. That's kind of a shocking statement, and I, and I want us to, to, we're gonna consider today why he says it is that. But a little bit more about the specific situation in this, in this content right here. Um, what's happening is that these Christians, likely converted Jews, in the community are favoring the rich and treating the poor with disdain and contempt. Specifically, this is a symptom that James is saying, your backs are straight, this shouldn't be, okay? Some things to observe. This is likely a problem, as I said, because James is spending so much time on it. These are likely two strangers, as they do not know where to sit or where to stand. The gold ring was an emblem of the upper-level Roman class, and the poor man in shabby clothing is a typical homeless person today that would have been dressed pretty filthy. We've never had someone, to my knowledge, come into our church like that, but, um, but uh, maybe someone who isn't dressed as, uh, you know, as, as nice or... Um, you know, doesn't seem to know where they're at, and they're just, I don't know, maybe they're just different or strange or odd, um, you know, coming in is, is kind of the, the picture he's drawing here. Um, the ESV's term partiality, and the NIV uses the word favoritism. In Hebrew, it means receiving the face. So to receive the face means to make a judgment about people based on external appearances. Imagine um, receiving their face would be like coming to them, and I believe it was John MacArthur that explained it like this, and holding up their face and looking at them. So it's an external judgment. And then making a judgment on them based on something that you perceive to be true. Now, I was thinking, I'm actually really good at this. Let me explain. I can get in this little place several times a day, I go there, and I can become an expert on other people without, I can know their, whether they're a man or woman, I can know where they're from, and I can know um, if they're old or young. I Seriously, I, I have this power. It's true. When I get in my car, 
I can, I can drive, and without seeing what they look like, I can know if there's a woman or a man in front of me, and I can know if they are young or old. It's true, I mean, doesn't that happen? I mean, I don't know. anyway, so I get in my car and I become extremely, I, I become partial. I make judgments on people based on little things. Maybe it's a bumper sticker that they have. It's just a, a, a bad habit that I have when I'm driving, and I like, I like to think I know who they are. You know, and it happens. This is, this is something that can be very familiar to us. So, um, so that's kind of what he's saying here. It's something that you perceive to be true, and then acting toward that person as though that judgment was valid. So not just are you making an opinion, but favoritism would imply that you're changing something, a, a way that you would act toward a person that wasn't like that based on an opinion that you have that was a judgment. It could also mean a respecter of persons or, um, or favoritism. So favoritism, partiality, and respecter of persons, all kind of right there. The form of the word that is used is plural, implying acts of favoritism. And this is significant for our purposes because it can be a wide-ranging application. All right, so we're going to take it there today. We're not just going to look at if a poor man comes in our, uh, in our group. We're going we're gonna, to uh, take this and we're going to make it wider, okay? So I just did some brainstorming and I thought, you know, what are, what are ways that we judge people, okay? Well, for one, race. We may judge someone who's ugly. We may li not like someone because they're pretty, prettier than us. They may be dirty. They might not take care of themselves. Um, they may be obese, and we make judgments um, like, you know, you know why, why did you let yourself get that way? Or, you know, all kinds of things can go through our head. How they dress, um, maybe they're just different than us. Maybe they have just very strange tastes. The example could be circumstances or status. So a man or a woman, we can make judgment if we're working with a man or, or, or it's a woman, a stage of life, married, singled, widowed, divorced, they have money or not, they have special positions maybe, it could be talents, titles, fame, um, it could be someone uh, who has a spouse, uh, or kids that, God forbid, aren't serving the Lord, and we, we judge them based on that uh, status. It can be something that they've done in the past, and maybe the Lord has forgiven them, but we still make a judgment on them and act, uh, you know, act accordingly. But yet, that has been covered by the blood, and we can't get past it. Um, it could just be the past uh, that, they, that they lived. I know that I, I, didn't, I didn't serve the Lord growing up, and I've, I've been a Christian half of my life, so I, that's a lot of years of damage and, 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 and yuckiness in, in my head about my past. And sometimes I run into people who've been a Christian their whole life, and immediately I just get you know, insecure, like, oh my goodness, if they only knew, maybe they wouldn't like me. You know, crazy things because there have been judgments on the past based on, the, you know, that I've experienced. Um, it, we, we have all kinds of, of hierarchies and things going on in our head about these matters. We can make uh, judgments on people based on what they value or what they do and what they don't do. Uh, homeschool. I remember the pressure I felt when I was a homeschool mom, and there were all these homeschool moms, and I just was trying to fit in that mold, and I was not of them. I was of them, like in them, but not of them, and I just finally was like, I can't do this. Um, and, and, but it was hard on me because I wanted to be like them. And, and, and so, you know, sometimes we have this, this status that we, we want to be, and maybe we see someone like that, but we're not like that. And, 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 so, and so we show favoritism to people who maybe are getting what they want, but we're not getting it, or they have what we have, or they are what we want to be, 
this is deep core issues that are very real. Uh, maybe they have Christian pedigree and you don't. Um, maybe they, uh, someone in our leaders meeting said they, it's hard for them if someone just lacks common sense. And I thought, well, I don't know that I struggle with that one, but I struggle with someone who's mean. If it's a mean person, I immediately don't, I immediately am just like, I don't want to feel like you. I kind of feel good about it. I'm like, you're mean. I don't want to feel like you. That's a problem. Because, you know, the Lord sees past that, and I have my own sin, and I have things that other people don't like about me. Maybe they're strange. I'm pretty sure I'm strange. So, uh, so anyway, I've, I've put some thought into that one. So who do we show favor to? Who does this happen to? It can be within our own families. It can be to one child or another. Maybe we've experienced that growing up where our parents favored one of our siblings more than us. Um, it can be obviously among church members, but it can be among friends, strangers, employees, you name it. Anywhere you walk, this is how far and encompassing this issue is. Uh, I asked some of our leaders last week some examples that they'd experienced, and one said, whatever child is obeying, and, uh, and I thought, I can so relate to that. The child that's obeying, I, I want to show you favor at that moment. But my next thought was, that is so true, because I tend to like the people more who do what I want and give me what I want, as if it serves something in myself. I like them more. But if you don't do what I want, maybe I'm tempted, or at least I have been in my past, to, 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 to like that person more or, or, show, or not show them favor, you know, depending on the circumstance. So we also like people who are like us. If you're similar to me, it's easier for me to like you. It's easier for me to like you. That's not who we are in Christ, is it? it it's just not who we are. Um, we favor those who like what we like and those who side with our beliefs. So first-tier issues like salvation and that kind of thing are really important to agree on in a body. But we've, I've, we've seen, we get a little snippy when we get down to third-tier issues. And if you want to know the difference between first and third-tier, go ask Brian or, uh, or Jonathan. They would love to explain that to you. But so many times I see little divides, even in attitude, maybe not in action, about third-tier issues that really aren't, really aren't a big deal, like what happens when we die and eschatological things, and, you know, if you're covenantal and, you know, stuff like this. That's not something to divide over. We have complete freedom to think differently in areas that aren't black and white in, in Scripture. You know, there, there's some liberty there. And so we have to be operate in grace. This is how the church functions. And favoritism really stifles that. Um, some other examples. Pastors and teachers who teach what is easy and what is popular. What a disservice. What a disservice. But they will look at the word and they'll say, you know what, this preaches really well. And this will make them have fuzzy feelings. So they'll go to a congregation and they'll teach, they'll teach these things to people because it's what they want to hear, but it's not what they need to hear. He will, they will teach what their itching ears want to hear, but they do it to gain the audience's favor. And so you know what? Their audience grows and their favor grows and their popularity grows. And then, and then you know, you're cool if you know them or you, you go to their church or you do their things. But the word of God is not, it's, it's not confined to that. It is hard. It is messy. It's messages like this that get into your business and make you squirm that make us grow and conform us to his image. And, and, and people who do that and lean toward faithfulness are not doing the body a service. They're hindering the progress of the kingdom of God. And it grieves him deeply. And it's all because of the root of favoritism or desiring that. 
Maybe experience people put in positions with no experience because they're someone's buddy. Or maybe um, even though someone has had more experience, or maybe you have and someone else was there because they knew someone. Happened to me, a story I'll share in a little bit. Um, people have only wanted to be your friend because of a position you have or popularity you have. Maybe you figured out that someone just likes you because of your esteem or your position, and then you find that out, and you're like, they, they didn't know me. They weren't really my friend at all. Wow, that hurts. That so hurts. So what does James have to say about this? Well, he's already told us in the passage we just read. After he gave the example of favoritism, the last line that we just read says in, in verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I want to unpack this a little bit because evil thoughts, there's so much there, and I think it would, it would benefit our hearts to, to dive deep into this. Douglas Moo states, the word thought would be toward the sinful standards that they are using to make their decisions. So sinful standard. It's, it's a standard that we have inside of us it's a, that, that, that we're making this judgment by, and that is what he is calling evil. So you can't have favoritism without making a judgment. We can't do it. It's impossible. And if you peel back the layers of those judgments, there's always a heart motive. And when Christ came, what did he do? Here were all these Pharisees doing the, the outward works for show, and he came to them, and he dove right into their heart. He said, if you don't forgive from your heart, you know, I, you heard it was said, you know, uh, do good to those who love you, but I tell you, love your enemies. This is about a heart attitude toward everyone who is your neighbor, okay, and, and loving them from the heart. It is kindness, it's a dispensation, a, a, a dis disposition of love toward others, um, and if it's not, then it is evil, um, but it's there. There's a heart motive with favoritism. Matthew Henry says the deformity of sin is never truly and fully discerned until the evil or the thoughts are disclosed. Isn't that hard? And I think sometimes we can say, you know, I don't have favoritism. I would never do that to someone. But if God pulled back our hearts, he opened up our hearts at that moment, you know what, we feel it. Maybe we feel glad when someone got a position over someone else or someone was shown favor, you know. It's there. Our hearts have yuck in them, and that's exactly what Christ came to expose. So we don't always show um, favoritism or exclusion, but our hearts want to. And some of the sinful standards that we use, I, I, I wrote down a whole lot of them, and then it occurred to me that we, I could, we could actually put them in two different categories. See, there are, there's the abuse, okay? And so I, this, the, these are under abuse. So, for, for example, a sinful standard we may use would be, I'm better than you. I just think I'm better than you. I do this or have this. I just think I'm better than you. Um, you're, not, you're not worthy to be in this group. You're not, you haven't worked hard enough. You're, th because of this or this or this, you're just not worthy. You're a lesser person. I have a right to judge you. I have a right to have an opinion about you. If I gave you favor, that would lessen my glory. That would lessen my glory. If I, if I do this for you, that would, I'm just going to, I can lessen your glory to, to stoop myself up on it, to protect my own, my own glory. That happens. Um, but when these things happen, you're basically saying, I can do a better job than God of determining your worth. And what he says about you isn't true. So that's under the abuse category. 
And then I have that we either use them with our sinful standards or we abuse them or we use them. So use would be we use people because they make us feel important. I need you to make me feel good about myself, so I'm going to tell people I'm your friend. Or I need to feel good about myself, so I'm going to tell people what I do. There's all kinds of things there. We're, we're lifting ourselves up. Those who cater to me are more valuable to me than those who don't, so that's who I'm going to associate with. Um, those, maybe it's someone who has money or not. God's word um, is not as important to me as gaining your approval, so I'm just going to withhold the truth from you so you like me, even though right now I know I should probably confront you on your sin. You see something and you just want to keep their approval, you want to keep them happy, so you're just like, hmm, I could probably point this out right now, but I want them to like me and know they get really mad right now. So you're more concerned about your favor than the glory of Christ. Um, basically, what you are saying when these happens is that God's valuation of me is not sufficient. What God has to say about me is not enough, so therefore I'm going to use you to prop myself up at your expense. And so it may just be in your heart, but it could be an outward act of favoritism. And at the core of all these things, there's just one single common denominator, and that's self. It's self-exaltation, self-will, self-desires. It is self-ego. It's pride. It's jealousy. It's fear. It's both fear of not having man's approval and, and fear of them having more approval than us. These are all sins of the flesh. And these standards set us up as our own God. Perhaps the Jews in this circumstance thought that money from the rich would be more valuable to the church. And if so, this judgment may involve um, denying God's estimation of the kingdom. In other words, God's the one who builds a church. He's the one that gave gifts to men. You don't need a whole lot of money to build a church. In fact, what builds a church is not money at all. It can be. It's important. Buildings are great. But, but it's the gift. It's the gospel. The gospel builds the church. I heard that um, in Iran right now, there are huge converts of Christianity because they're building the church on discipleship because they can't have churches. And so people are coming in hordes. Interestingly enough, it's mainly the women that are moving, uh, heading the movement um, because they can get in more places without being seen and they can share the gospel more. But isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? Um, it's up to God is the point to build a church however he wants and whoever he wants to use. It's his estimation, not ours. And so James goes into why favoritism is evil. And you will see this on your notes. There's a lot here, so I just tried to simplify it for you. But number one, favoritism contradicts who God is and what he wants. We know this because Christ is the greatest statement of who God is, yet how did he come? Did he come rich and boasting and taking on his glory? No, he came poor. My favorite verse on this is Isaiah 53, where it says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isn't that everything opposite from what the world values right there? Despised, rejected, no beauty, we esteemed him not. Doesn't he say with the statement of his own life who he is and what he's 
values. So, a story. Uh, a friend of mine and a former boss um, loved Mother Teresa. So she would go to Calcutta, and she went there very frequently. In fact, so frequently that uh, Mother Teresa recognized her, and in an airport went up to her and said, Lori, Lori. She said, yes, Mother Teresa. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> so, and, uh, and Mother Teresa said, you speak with microphones. And Lori said, yes, yes, I speak with microphones. She said, my people here are poor, but they are rich. They are rich in the spiritual. I pity your people. You go to America, and you make them rich. Tell them. Tell them about Christ's love. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? So Christ, what did he do? He came to set up, and I love this term. My husband has this book that sat on our, our shelf since we got married 17 years ago, and I've never read it, <laughs> but I love the title, and I think about it all the time. It's called The Upside Down Kingdom, and that's really what he came to set up. The first of the Beatitudes, I love it. It's like he knocks the world system just flat on its face. In Luke 2.20, he says, Blessed are you, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are poor. Poor is what he sticks in there. Number one, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom. James is likely reflecting on the Beatitudes when in verses 5 through 7, our next two verses in this text, says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. Do you hear Mother Teresa in that? She got it because she served, because she looked like him, and she did do that, okay? So as such, God's choice to the poor to inherit the kingdom is evidence of his regard for them and shows how wrong it is for us to discriminate against them. But it's not just the poor in the flesh, but it's also those who see their own need. Isn't that interesting? In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for poor implies one who is humble, meek, and recognizes their utter dependence on the Lord and trust, and trust his deliverance. So basically, you could be Warren Buffett and be poor in God's estimation, and actually you are. You still are. God isn't impressed with our riches anyway. But 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 he can be poor in his estimation of himself from, from, from the, the Hebrew interpretation, and God will accept him. So it's not just saying you have to be poor, but God came to those who recognize our need, and the poor are more likely to do it. They just are. I've, I love sharing the gospel, and it really is tough to get a rich person saved. Not that I'm doing it. Try sharing the gospel with a lot of people, and you'll figure out that the ones that, the ones that are destitute who are looking for something, oh, my word, it's like, here's the gospel, bam. Wow. Why are they rich? Because they receive it. They have ears to hear and eyes to see, and it blesses him that they are willing. And so, so they are rich, and that is what happens. And that's why in America, we sometimes, we have, we have so many hierarchies that we watch that we don't see through this lens. So, um, so one way or another, we all come to the Lord poor. I mean, really, that's what we do. And in this way, the world uh, may have hierarchies, but in the upside-down kingdom, his death is the great equalizer. We all come in poor and we all come in equal because we are one in Christ. In Christ, Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Oh, it's such a relief. Okay, the world has so many hierarchies, it's overwhelming. But in the upside-down kingdom, there is absolutely no distinction in value. We are all one in Christ. And so in these ways, favoritism contradicts who God is and what he wants. And number two, favoritism is an injustice. 
So how am I doing on time? Let's see, where am I going? Uh, okay, so it's an injustice. Um, there was a time, and I'll just very quickly share this, that I was, uh, I, I, had a, I had a master's degree, I had a, uh, I had a, I had written curriculum that was being used overseas uh, for character education. I taught six years in character education, and I, and I, and I, the superintendent said, "Hey, do you want to teach character education to 26 schools in our district? You can teach all of them, the Beatitudes, whatever you want. Just don't bring Jesus up." And I was like, "Great, that prepares the heart for the gospel. I'm going to do it." He's like, "It's only one thing. You have to go to this interview and, and interview because we have this union thing." And so I go to the interview, and the next thing I know, I get a call. They said, "You didn't get the job." I go, what do you mean? I have a master's. I wrote my thesis on this. I have six years' experience. I have got 100 volunteers ready to go. He's like, well, I don't know what happened. What did you do wrong? And I'm like, I don't know. So I went home, and I stewed, and, and I cried. And three months later, I ended up figuring out that the assistant to, the, sec to the, the, the head of the union was a treasurer, and she thought she needed a job. And they also didn't think I was cut out for it because I was white, and I couldn't relate to the kids. So I didn't get the job, and I thought, oh, my goodness. You know, now I'm really thankful for it because it was kind of, now I get what it feels like to be in that, that kind of situation. I'm, it really blessed me. But at the time, I thought, this doesn't make any sense. The superintendent said it. I'm actually qualified. And then two years later, the girl left and, and threw the money away, and the whole program fell to pieces. No good came out of it. I'm like, Lord, I could have built your kingdom. But in the same way, how much more qualified, set apart, and worthy are the less privileged and the disadvantaged to inherit the kingdom? And yet we are guilty sometimes of shutting them out. If Christ died for them, they are worthy. They have, they have all the qualifications because he was worthy. He is king. And yet, it is an injustice because when we show favoritism, sometimes they aren't the ones that get the gospel because we, we not mean we, but sometimes because of favoritism, sometimes it's just shut out. And that is how favoritism is an injustice, okay? They are qualified to receive the kingdom in their poverty because what he did made them worthy. And in that way, they are completely qualified for that. So we get frustrated injustice, but it is injustice when the poor, or anyone else for that matter, are withheld, withheld um, are, when there's favoritism. And that's how he sees it. Number three, favoritism violates kingdom law. The kingdom has a royal law. It tells us this in verses 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Well, why is it a royal law? Well, it comes from the king. Okay? He would have known that. James would have known that when he put that word in there. Um, it is my understanding that the royal law that he is talking about is the whole law as it is interpreted and handed over to the church and the teachings of Jesus. And the centerpiece of Christ's royal law was what? It was love your neighbor. This would have been on James' mind as he wrote this because he would have been reflecting on Christ who was reflecting on the Old Testament. The Old Testament in Leviticus 19 where it talks about you shall love your neighbor with all your heart, mind, and soul. Three times prior to that, he talked about showing partiality. He said don't do it. So they would have been hand in hand in James' mind. If you're showing partiality, you're breaking the royal law because you're not showing love. Okay? And in this sense, number four, favoritism is rebellion to a king who alone has right to judge. Brian, a week or two ago in his sermon, said, You are not in the kingdom without being under the authority of a king. We don't set the terms of this kingdom. The king does. It's his terms. Don't do it. And as members of his kingdom, it's not our job because he alone has the right to stand judgment. And I would like to tell you, there is so much freedom in realizing we don't have to judge. We're going to keep wanting to do it because we're human, but I hope 
that as you know me, and as I get older in this church, because I hope to die here one day, that, 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 that judgment and my tendency to judge and be quick to have opinions just softens, softens, softens. Because it's not my priority. And it's so freeing to know that he is a just judge that can see things in people and, and that he alone has that right. And it's not my, it's not my business. For somewhere, where did I pick up this idea that I can have these opinions on people and judge them? That's so petty and ridiculous. And, and, I, and, it, and it's, it's cheap talk. And I don't like it in me. And I see it all the time. And, and I want that gone. So I'm, I'm praying about that. Number five, favoritism dims the glory of Christ. We are not only children of God, and so in that way are meant to be in his likeness, but we are priests. What do priests do? We bring the light to the people. We're the light. We can't even bring them to Christ if we're not shining it. And if we're showing favoritism or if we're judging or we're sinning, we're not, we're not his priests. He can't use us. We're ineffective, which brings us to number six. Favoritism grieves the king. It grieves him because he loves man. I can't read this whole verse because I don't have time. But Matthew 25, starting at 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, then we will sit on the glorious throne before him with all the nations gathered, and he will separate the people, some on the left and some on the right, and he will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick. I was in prison. Do you see this? This is him identifying with those who are hurting on this earth. It is such an offense to him when these things happen because it is personal, because he loves us like that. And then he repeats himself to those on the left, and he says um, the same thing to them. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, as you did not do to the least of these, you did not do to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous eternal life. Don't you want to get there and know that you loved him? And how do we know that we love him? We love his people. We accept them, and we lay down our judgments. We lay down favoritism, and we run after him by running after those he loves, which is everyone. Something that's fascinating is that neighbor in the Old Testament, when they said neighbor, the Jews would have heard fellow Israelites. But in the New Testament, when Christ came, remember when he talked about the Good Samaritan? He's basically saying, who is your neighbor? It's the, it, it's, it's the least likely. It is the person in need regardless of their status or anything. Someone is in need, that is your neighbor. And your neighbor also includes your enemies. So love them. Feed them. Recently, the Lord has been really working on me in this area. I've had some, some big offenses, um, not even within the church, outside, things that have happened to me. Um, and, and the Lord has been like, Sarah, do you love me? Love them. So, Lord, but do you know what they just did? Love them. You show them kindness. You love them. You love them. Well, why do I need to do this? Because you're mine. Because I did that to you. When you were my enemy, I loved you. If you love me, just show me your love this way, Sarah. Just go do it. Let me tell you something. That is such a death to yourself. It's such a death to yourself. But you know what it does is it requires the Lord to live through you. It requires the Holy Spirit. And so in that sense, it's an act of worship. It is so personal to him. And if you want to grow in your love for the Lord, go love your enemy. Say, God, make me an enemy. I'm going to go love him. He will take you up on that offer. And let me tell you something. The reward is so much more glorious when you do it. So, number six, it grieves the king. When we do this, we grieve this 
and the men of God, and um, we grieve men in whom there's a spirit of God, and it hurts them. I just, one final point before we close. Um, if you've been hurt by others from favoritism, you can likewise know that it hurt him. If you've been shown favoritism and these things, you're saying, that's great, Sarah, you're telling me to do all this, but I've been the recipient of this. It was personal to him, too. It was personal. Your way to freedom is knowing that he cares and it matters to him, and he felt it. He is so good. So James' main point is this. What it all comes to is this. Keep the royal law. If you fulfill, verse 8, the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. We will be judged one day when we stand before God by our conformity to the will of God expressed in Christ's teachings. And it's not just hard. It's actually impossible. But there's very good news. Because the standards of conduct that were in the Old Testament that now continue in the New Testament, James tells us, is now a law of liberty. How is it a law of liberty? Number one, the penalty for sin has been paid by Christ. You don't have to fear judgment. You're now free. You don't have judgment. It is not on you. You don't have to worry about And because of the Holy Spirit that's now been given to you, you have the power to obey. Well, Lord, I don't think I can do this. That is a lie. But I don't think I can love him. That is a lie. But I don't think I can go and not be judgmental anymore. That is a lie. Why? Because he who raised Christ from the dead is at work within you. We are without an excuse for showing love all the time. Now, we're going to fail. That's why we're going to fail. But we can do it. We absolutely can. We have to quit telling ourselves that we can't. Next, we have the power to obey. Oh, and that was my point. Sorry, because our back is straight. Our back is straight, okay? And we have the privilege of obeying a good king whose burden is easy and his yoke is light. It's actually good to do these things. It's wonderful because he is good, and that's his purpose for us. And so we have this privilege, and doing his will then comes with a peace. And that's what we all want anyway. We fill ourselves with a hierarchy because we think it's going to give us peace, not bowing to the king's will. But he actually gives us the peace that surpasses understanding when we submit to his will, and it is so good. And then we don't need the things that we're searching over with the world. We don't need the status, the esteem, the glory, the praise. Because we're filled. We're satisfied with Christ. That is where we live, keeping that peace. He can keep him who's perfect in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on him, saturate ourselves with his will. And then we have the promise that he will work in us to accomplish his purposes So he will continue to work this in you, even if you go today and be like, I don't really agree with Sarah. If you're in Christ, he will still have his way with you, and he will work out his purposes in your life still. And then in closing, Douglas Moo says, what do we do with all this? In obedience to our king, Christians are to build among ourselves a genuine counterculture in which the values of the kingdom of God, rather than the values of this world, are lived out. Upside down kingdom. This means we are not to make decisions about people in the church or outside of it based on any external factor, whether it be dress, color of skin, outward appearance, or worldly advantage. Rather, we are to enthusiastically, I love this word, enthusiastically welcome into our church and into our lives people from all different sorts of backgrounds, races, cultures, interests, and give them as much regard as we would the most famous and influential. How do we do this? Number one, we ask God, God, give me your estimation of reality. Show me how you really see this person. Show me how you really see this church. Show me how you really see this this problem. And show me how you really see me. Am I really as awesome and high as mighty as I think? Or am I not? 
it, there was a time in my life where I, I kind of had a little bit of worldly fame and glory in my little world. And, uh, and I remember in that time, the Lord had my babysitter who never had a job. She didn't have anything on her resume. And her faith blew mine out of the water. And every day I'd have to pick up my son when I'm all boastful and everything. And I'd look at her and I'd be like, you know what? In the Lord's eyes, she's greater. Why? Because she loved better than me. And he dealt with me and just kept knocking me down, knocking me down. Anyway, he's so gracious to do that. Um, number two, we look at Christ, the perfect image of God's glory. And I would just recommend just spending time reading his life. Sometimes we read everything, but we don't just look at Jesus. What did he do? Because with the Holy Spirit in us, it's his will that he would live out his purposes through us. And I will say this. One of the most glorious places to be in your walk with God are when we come to a place where we say two words. We say, I can't. God, I can't love this person. I don't like them at all. Or, or they did this to me. I, I can't do this. That's a great place to be because the Lord will be like, well, I can. I'm glad you came to that place. I can love on them. Just ask me. Ask me for help. He will do it every time. He will do it every time. Um, so he asks us, and then today, here's my last thing I'm going to leave you with. Will you ask him to show you where you have had favoritism in your life? Will you ask him? And then repent as, he, as the Holy Spirit brings a circumstance to bear, and it may not be this week, it may be later, or when it comes to your mind, say, God, I'm sorry. Isn't that amazing? That's all it takes. God, I'm sorry. He welcomes it. He welcomes it. And then finally, will you ask him to allow the living Christ who dwells in you to love your neighbor through you, showing no favoritism for his glory? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I've done my best to look at what this says and correctly interpret it, but I am still a human. I have my own judgments, my own flaws, and uh, I have my own needs where I, I'm preaching this to myself even as I talk. But God, I pray that we would look at it as coming from you, what has been from you, and where you need to adjust our backs so that they're straight. Or maybe these are symptoms and our back is just straight. God, I pray this week that you would take liberty to do that as we quietly agree with you that that is good and we can trust you because you are good and you are the king of a kingdom that will last forever and your purposes will stand. So God, let us not get there and be ashamed that we have withheld your will in any way, but that we have brought more people to glory because of the power that was in us to transform us and others into your image. And we pray these things in your name.